Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J, Sue L, Veronica C, and Audrey N. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that our speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A session which follows, that will not be recorded. So please feel free to ask your questions there. It won't be recorded. And we'll post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function. And we ask that if you could please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, if you need to step away from your screen for any reason, and um, if you're exercising, you need to eat, please disconnect your video when you do that. So now we will turn the meeting over to Scottsdale in Arizona to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. You need to unmute, Harlan. Oh, thank you. Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much. And I just want to thank each and every one of you. I got a statistic this week from Lauren N., who is one of the people who put this together that blew my mind. And I want to thank all of you. She showed me a breakdown that 4,000 downloads of these podcasts have been downloaded in the last year. And I am just blown away. Thank you very, very much for coming, attending, listening, supporting with your contributions, with your presence. It's quite an amazing, amazing miracle. Uh, that's something that started out so small, so private, uh, turned into what this is. And um, so I'm very, very honored that you that you come and that you uh, support this. This is this is really incredible. And I hope that these podcasts will be something of a legacy long after I'm gone, uh, because I believe sincerely from the bottom of my heart that there's some really good information here that will that will stand the test of time. We have been talking about um, the chapter, there is a solution, very important. It is the first of the chapters written after Bill wrote his own story. And Bill did not write his story to be chapter one. He wrote his story to lead off the story section in the back of the book. But a guy by the name of Tom Uzzle was brought in. Tom Uzzle was brought in, in in the autumn, late autumn of 38. The book was published in 39, April the 10th, 39. And he moved Bill's story from the story section to chapter two at that time, the doctor's opinion in the first printing, first edition was chapter one. And then that was moved because Silkworth was neither an alcoholic. Uh, he, they wanted to have it, the book written by alcoholics for alcoholics and Silkworth was not an alcoholic. So they moved it to the Roman numeral section and Bill's story became chapter one. And this became chapter two rather than three, but it was the first of the chapters written after Bill wrote his own story. And it was one of the chapters that revealed to the world, well, when we say the world, we mean the Ohio meetings uh, and we mean the rest of the New Yorkers, the intention and the way that Bill was gonna approach writing this book. And so this chapter was the first glimpse of how Bill was going to handle this God business. You had a lot of different factions. You had, you had two factions within the alcoholics. Notice I didn't say within AA because there was no AA yet. There was the drunk squad of the Oxford group. And you had the Oxford groupers in Ohio. And you had the guys in New York that in 37, we're gonna split from the Oxford group. The Oxford group made it very clear that they did not feel that Bill and Lois were being maximum. They felt that Bill should be recruiting Wall Street people instead of drunks, because the Wall Street people had something that the drunks did not have, and that was money. And the people in the Oxford group wanted Bill to go get 
whoever he could possibly get that had some money. Remember that they were not interested in a remedy for alcoholism. That was not their thing. That was not their purpose. It was not their uh, uh, intention or their, or their uh, focus at all, not even at all. So they wanted Bill to do this and he refused. He says, I don't know about you guys, but God has imbued me with a desire to sober up drunks. And that is exactly what I'm going to do. He says, and I see it so clearly. And they said, no, we don't see that. We see you need to go out and to get Wall Street people into the Oxford group. And they were forbidding people to go to the Bill and Lois's house on Clinton Street in Brooklyn for dinner. They were forbidding people from joining in with the Wilsons in different things. And there was a lot of friction at that time. And then finally, Bill and Lois um, felt this and Bill pulled the uh, the guys out of the Oxford group. And they started meeting on Sunday night at Bill's house at 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn. And they started meeting on Tuesday night after that, not only at Bill's house, but then that meeting switched over after the, the Wilsons lost their home after the big book was published. It switched over to the Parkhurst's home in New Jersey. The Parkhurst, Catherine and, and Hank Parkhurst lived in New Jersey. Uh, and then in September of 39, Hank picked up liquor again. So he was out of the picture as far as that goes. Just a little bit of what was going on, but this was a chapter that Bill was very proud of, but make no mistake, this is all Bill Wilson, this idea that these guys poured over every sentence, poured over every word and made changes as he went along is really not accurate at all. This chapter is 100% Bill Wilson. And I'm glad it's the way it is. Whoever wrote it, I wouldn't care because the chapter is timeless. And the chapter can be appreciated for a couple of things. Number one, it exonerates us by stating that this is an illness and it's an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. And we first get introduced to that in the doctor's opinion, and then we get reinforced in Bill's story. And now we're getting it reinforced again. There was a lot of shame in me because I couldn't control my weight. I couldn't control my food. And the rest of the kids in my, in my group, the rest of the kids that I was friends with, they could eat four French fries. They could split an, a small order of fries, split an order of McDonald's fries with a sibling or a friend, and neither one would finish their half. And I just couldn't understand that. And what I assumed throughout my entire life, and I assume this well into, well into my second, third decade of life, that they were stronger than me, smarter than me, better than me. They had more character than me, and they certainly had more willpower than me, because that's what everybody was telling me. I needed more willpower. And what Bill introduces to us Again, because Dr. Silkworth tells us this, but what Bill Wilson tells us is where food or alcohol is concerned, excuse me, the will is amazingly weakened. And I believe that for my life, and I don't think I'm unique here, I think that this could go for any and every one of us, be you bulimic, be you anorexic, be you a compulsive overeater who reached very heavy weights or be you somewhere in the middle. I believe that what I went through is not unique, but this is what I went through. I believed that these thoughts and behaviors around food were secret and unique unto me. I believed it because I didn't have any verification that there were other people who felt like me about ice cream, who ate ice cream like I did, and who lusted after food in quite the way that I did, that they didn't obsess about it. My friends could take food or leave it. It was no big deal to them one way or the other. If they ate, great. If they didn't, that was fine. And when I got into this program and I understood from listening to you 
that I am not alone. It was the beginning of a super highway between me and God. Somebody threw a rope across a chasm that I could get across to the other side. And the more stories I heard, the more of you that I listened to, it became a road and then it got paved and then it got expanded and then it got improved where today I have immediate access to a God who not only understands what I'm going through, but he sends me gods with skin to comfort me in the thought that I may be alone, but I'm never alone. I always have you, be you male, female, black, white, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, be you Muslim, be you Buddhist. I don't care what you are. I don't care what your nationality is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what the color of your skin is. I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. The only thing that matters is we have each other and that we are as survivors of a shipwreck where democracy prevails from steerage to captain's table. And I never have to be alone again. None of us ever have to be alone again. And the work that I do every day is based on this fact. If I can't trust you and I can't trust God, then where am I going to go? I must be able to, to have that place where I can not only be understood, but I can understand. And what is it that I understand? What is it that I'm speaking? I'm speaking the language of the heart. This is the only place that I can go where the language of the heart is both spoken and well understood. I, can, I have friends who live here in Arizona, and this is why I live here. We moved here when we were a we, now I'm an I. But when we moved here, we wanted to be close to the people that were close to me in my childhood, in my youth, that I still am close with. I know everything about them. They know everything about me. But there's one thing they will never, ever, 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 ever understand. And that is, why in the world would Harlan, after all that he's missed out on, after all the pain and suffering that he has suffered, why would he walk into a donut shop? Why would he do such a thing? Why would he walk into a food store and gorge himself on junk food? They will never understand that in a million years, but I don't have to explain it to you. I only need to say, I know you get it. And we can share at a gut level, a deep, gut level. And I have nowhere else to share that with. I could explain this to them until I'm blue in the face. They will never get it, but you get it instantly. You get it not because you learned it in a book. You get it because you've lived it. You know the shame. You know the heartbreak. You know the horror of this disease. And you know it like you know your name. Nobody has to teach it to you. Nobody has to explain it to you. The knowledge is acquired through living your life. We are as survivors of a shipwreck. Now we're gonna to go to page 20. We're gonna to go to page 20 and we're gonna pick it up with the words moderate drinkers. I'll give you a second to get there. And while you're getting to page 20 where it says moderate drinkers, um, we just want to remember that the title of the chapter in and of itself is a comfort. It says there is a solution. Now for thousands of years, thousands of years, there was nowhere to go. There was nothing that could be done for gluttons like me, which is what I am, a glutton. If you look up in any good dictionary, you look up the word glutton, it fits me exactly. 
for alcoholics, gamblers, drug addicts. Yes, they had drug addicts many, many years ago. The drugs might have been different. The, the situations might have been different, but yes, they had opium and they had delaudanum and they had different drugs that people could get addicted to. And people have been smoking heroin. Not, they didn't just start smoking heroin You know, yesterday. They have been smoking heroin for centuries, many, many centuries, they have been smoking heroin. So the bottom line is, is that this has been going on for a long time. Now there's finally a solution. There was never a solution before. There was never anything that could be done with a person like me. I had nowhere to go. And I've told you that when I was nine years old, the solution that the doctor and my mother came up with was to load me up with diet pills, heavy duty amphetamines. And you know, I've said this before. Um, I just don't understand how you give amphetamines to a nine-year-old little boy. I don't get it. But there is a solution. And then the title of the chapter also works at the level of there is a solution. Now I hear this all the time. And for other people, if this is true, that's fantastic. I'm not editing. I'm not commenting. I'm not passing judgment. But for me, there is one way to work the steps for me. That's it. One way. And my way is the big book way, because I'm not that smart. I am not smart enough to sit and look at choices on how to do whatever step. I need it laid out for me in extremely simple terms. And the big book title, the big book lays it out that way. But the title of the chapter, there is a solution means that simpletons like me, dimwits like me, can just follow the book and recover. Because when I have to make choices, that scares me because I'm scared of not doing it perfectly. And I'm scared that I'm going to make the wrong choice. So what I will generally do is I'll make the same choice you make for two reasons. Number one, now you'll like me because I think you're smart enough so that I'm going to follow you. And I hope that that will butter your bread enough so that you'll think I'm neat and keen too. But the other thing is now I can blame you if something goes wrong. And that's what I did in my marriage. I let my wife make every single decision, not because I'm such a gentleman, far from it. Not that I'm such a nice guy, far from it. I let her make every decision so that because I was scared to death of the ramifications. I didn't want to be blamed for anything. So if she's making all the decisions, I figure maybe she won't leave me. Well, guess what? I've been single now for 12 years. She's been gone for 12 years and she started having a relationship with another man. So I need to be very, very simple and I need to just follow along as it's written. All right, let's go to page 20 as soon as I blow my nose. <laughs> now, yes, it's beautiful here in Arizona and it is going to be 88 degrees today. And the humidity is probably about 15% if it's that high, 18%. And it's absolutely gorgeous here. But everything is blooming. Everything is well into, we're well into spring here. We don't have a lot of spring left. By the middle of May, end of May, it starts getting really toasty here in Arizona. And uh, we know that this is uh, the last gasp of uh, the last gasp of spring, but it's everything is in bloom and it's just wreaking havoc on me. Moderate drinkers, I'm on page 20. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. And that's a lot of my friends. Now I'm 67 years old and so are my friends. Some are 68 already, some are 66, but we're generally anywhere between 66 and 68 years old at this point in life. And some of us sadly are no longer here, but they got really skinny bodies when they came out of the mint. 
and they were really skinny as kids. And then we turned 50 and all of a sudden for the first time in their life, they started noticing those 34 pants, those 36 pants that they had been wearing, 34s, 32s, whatever that might be, weren't fitting so well anymore. And they were getting fat, you know, their metabolism was slowing down, their sedentary lifestyle was, you know, slowing them down. Uh, they were married, they didn't have to watch it as much. Well, what started happening is for all of them, they had to start hitting that gym. They had to start hitting that trail. They had to hit that bike. They had to do what they needed to do, or that was going to last forever. And they did it. And most of them have lost 90% of that weight that they put on when we turned 50. But now for the first time in their life, they have to really work at it. And they also have had to do the one thing after we turned 50 that they never had to do before. They have to watch their intake of food. They're not used to that. They're not accustomed to that, but they do it and they do it with no problem. They just stop in the middle of something and they say, that's enough, I don't wanna gain weight. And I would love to be able to legally get away with killing them, but the police frown on that. But if I could, between you and me, I would drill into their skulls with power drills and say, oh, it's about time now, you son of a... All right, let's go to page 20, bottom of the page. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally, physically the allergy, mentally the twist. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. Let me backtrack. We're not talking about the, the allergy and the twist because we're not talking about the real alcoholic. What I mean is heavy drinking impairs you mentally by getting you drunk and physically it does a lot of nasty ass things to you too alcohol excessive alcohol too is a toxic substance in the body it is a toxic substance and that's why the body looks to get rid of it and the first way that it uses to get rid of it is through regurgitation vomiting your body will actually cause you to vomit when you eat excess food or excess liquor to get it out of the system and that's why these guys you know puke their heads off but i don't mean the allergy and the twist of the mind i misspoke there because we're not talking about a real alcoholic here. It may cause him to, I'm at the top of 21. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If, he, if a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. And I'm seeing some of that in some of my friends. Most of my friends went through periods when we were in our 20s when the bars were the hunting grounds for pretty girls so they would they do what people do when they go to bars they started drinking and some of them when they found that significant others stopped on a dime never drank again they may have one here and there throughout the year maybe five drinks a year but some of them kind of hung on to it some of them kind of hung on to the habit of drinking and some of them got into some trouble in their livers, in their blood work, in some of the other things that liquor does to you. And the doctor had to lay the law down and say, look, mister, you're now diabetic. Look, mister, you're now uh, in a situation where you've got this condition or gout or you've got diabetes or gout and you've got this and you've got that and you're gonna to have to make adjustments to your lifestyle. I think the two conditions that my friends dealt with that were the most impactful on these habits were diabetes and gout. When they contracted those things and gastritis, I have gastritis too, but I was never a drinker, never a drinker. But the bottom line is gout and diabetes ran through our group, uh, not, not that everybody got it. I don't have diabetes and I don't have gout, but some of them did get it. 
And when that became operative, they had to stop. No more drinking, no more, you know, no more White Castle runs in the middle of the night and, you know, no more, you know, triple. There was a restaurant here in Phoenix called the Heart Attack Grill. I kid you not, it's out of business now. They even did a segment on it on CBS Sunday morning. It was called the Heart Attack Grill. And they joked about having uh, uh, defibrillators on, on site and the waitresses were dressed up as nurses and the, the, the cooks and stuff were dressed up as doctors or something. I was never there. I just saw the thing on TV, but I know it was here in Phoenix called the Heart Attack Grill. And you'd get these like triple cheeseburgers you know, cooked in lard and the fries were cooked in lard. I mean, everything was just as fattening as they could possibly make it. And that kind of stuff that they would go twice a year, once a year, that all had to stop. So this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. And when they stopped it, they didn't really obsess about it. They didn't, oh, I wish we could do that. They talk more about the good times they had doing it than the actual food itself. And that's the difference. I could lie with the best of them and say, yeah, we had such a good time. And remember we were there and this waitress and she, she whatever, and she said this, or she said that or whatever. But no, I was thinking about how am I going to get my hands on those, you know, that the good stuff that I really like. And they're thinking about the good times that we had. And that's the difference. That's the big difference. Top of 21, top of 21. But what about the real alcoholic? Now you're talking my kind of language. Because when it comes to compulsive overeating, I don't know much about a heavy eater. I don't know firsthand about a moderate eater. And I sure as heck don't know firsthand about a light eater. I know about the real compulsive overeater because that's what I have been from the moment that I was born. Let's see what it says together. What about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. I didn't do that. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. I skipped that grade. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. That's me. No matter what age I was at and no matter what the situation was, I wanted ice cream. I wanted a cookie. I wanted whatever it is I wanted. That didn't matter. Once I ripped into that, I was going to finish everything I could get my hands on. I never knew what it was like to eat one piece of pizza. The only time I had one piece of pizza was when it was the only piece I could get my hands on. I never ate one cookie unless it was the only cookie I could get my hands on. Once I started eating cookies from the time I was a very, very small young child, I was going to finish the box. That's who I am. That's what I am. And that's what I am molecularly. I never made a decision to become that. I never developed into that. I just was that my entire life. Never knew anything different. Never knew anything different. How do you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? In my mind, one large jar of extra crunchy peanut butter one large strawberry preserve or Fred Flintstone grape jelly, one loaf of bread equals one sandwich serves one. That's how you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my crazy mind serves one, uno. Now here we're gonna go into the longest paragraph in the book. I got to catch my breath. No, I don't. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Let's stop right there because I want to give you a little background on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it's interesting. I don't know whether Bill knew this or not, but since I know it, we're going to talk about it here for just a second because I think it bears, it bears out. 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was a book about a man who was a mild mannered guy. He was just a really nice guy, Dr. Jekyll, everybody's buddy. He was just a great guy. But when he drank a potion, when he drank this liquid, he became a womanizer. He became a ruffian. He became a tough. He became a guy to be feared. And this book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was written by Robert Louis Stevenson after he had written a bunch of children's books. And his wife looked at the manuscript and burned it. She took it out and burned it. She had never read anything as ghastly as that in her entire life. And while she was in her tempestuous anger toward him, she says, and Robert, while we're on the subject, where in the world did you get such an idea? Well, Robert Louis Stevenson's father was an alcoholic and when drunk would beat his mother in front of him, beat his mother, and while drunk would have girlfriends on the side. While drunk was someone to be feared. Where indeed, where indeed, where indeed would young Robert Louis Stevenson get an idea for a nice man, a mild-mannered man, a helpful man, a friendly man, who drank a potion and became someone to be feared. Where indeed did he get such an idea? Let's continue. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. That was me. I was always rip roaring from the food. Tonight's Saturday night. And that means I'd be on my date. Threesome, me, little Debbie and Sarah Lee. We're going to make a threesome of it. Maybe we'll invite Ben and Jerry, maybe not. But most of the time, we're just going to have our threesome, me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. I didn't see that when I was loaded on Twinkies, loaded on uh, cookies loaded on McDonald's that I was a different person, but I was, and I would be again. I'm not paying attention to anything you're saying. I don't really have the capacity to care about you. You are either giving me food or you are someone that I want to get away from and avoid. I am not the same person when I'm loaded on food as I am when I'm not. I'm just not the same person. I'm not really there. I may look like I'm there. It kind of looks like, yeah, he's here, but give me some cookies, give me some cake. And I'm not in my body. I become a shark. A shark is an eating machine. They move and eat constantly. And that's what I become. I become a shark. Let him drink for a day and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. And that's me too. One of the things that the eating disorder does beautifully is it's a, it's a really good abuser. And what does an abuser do? An abuser will call you out from your support, separate you from anyone that can support you and make you alone. It, it will give you the situation of isolation. And isolation is a very bad situation. You have no friends around you. No one is there to blow the whistle on you. No one is there to point out how crazy this behavior is. And it, the abusive nature of this addiction is such that it will call you from the pack and it will, it will isolate you. And that's the first thing it does. So it says we're antisocial. I'm ashamed of what I look like. I'm afraid of what you're going to say when you see me. I'm scared of the social interactions. I don't have clothes that fit. I don't look the way I'm supposed to look. I am grossly more overweight than I was the last time you saw me. And so I get sick, headache, 
whatever stomach ache, I can't come to the wedding. I can't come to the graduation. I can't come to the bar mitzvah. I can't come to the social event because I'm ashamed of myself. And I hate to tell you how much regret that I've had on the things that I have missed in my life because I was deadly scared to see you because I know I've gained so much weight since I've seen you, I don't dare leave the house. Either I saw you every day or I didn't wanna see you at all. And when I would run into people, I would try to hide. And that's hard to do when you're five, six, 700 pounds. I would try to hide in the store or all of a sudden leave because I was afraid of you. I was afraid of what you were gonna say to me. And I was ashamed of myself. I was ashamed of what I had become. Let's continue. He has a positive genius. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment. I got tight means drunk. Tight means drunk. But I would binge no matter when it was. There was no good time or bad time. I would just binge particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept because I would be scared to death. I was scared to death of the world that I was born into and I was afraid and I would rather avoid things than face them head on. One of the things that recovery has given me and I'm so grateful for this and this is not something that has much to do with eating or not eating, but one of the things that this recovery has given me is the ability to face life and not run away and not be an ostrich. An ostrich will stick its head in the sand and avoid real life. I don't have to live like an ostrich anymore. I can see the income tax man. I can see the person who's preparing my will and testament, my directives. I can see these things, deal with these things. I can deal with whatever comes along and I know that I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. Whereas before I couldn't. Today I got up and I've got a friend coming in from the Bay Area. He's coming in from San Francisco mid-May. And then in June, I'm going to California. We're not going to be meeting like this on the 3rd of June, the first Saturday of June. While I'm on the subject, uh, June the 4th, we will not be meeting because I'm doing the first live big book weekend since Sarasota, Florida over two years ago. And I'm going to be doing this live in Los Angeles, California, actually Culver City, California. So if you want to come start making your arrangements, it's going to be at the VFW Hall in Culver City. There's 120 spots. We're hoping that you can come. It's the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of June. And But see... Anything like that telling you that I would just scare the scare the daylights out of me, no matter what the situation is, when it comes to step two being mentioning sanity, boy, oh boy, now I live a very sane life, especially compared to the way I lived before, much more sanity in my life. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. And that was not me to a certain extent because I was not honest and well-balanced concerning pretty much anything. I lied when the truth would have served me better, but especially when it came to food, I was very dishonest, very, very selfish. Notice it doesn't say we were selfish and dishonest. It says we are incredibly dishonest and selfish when it comes to food. But I wasn't very sensible and well-balanced concerning everything. I was not. Everything in my life was screwed up. Everything in my life was abnormal. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes, and he has a promising career ahead of him. Oh, the things I could have done were it not for this darn disease. I would have had so much of a better career. I wanted to teach. I wanted to do things. I wanted to sell. I wanted to be so much more than I ended up professionally. I still have to work and that angers me and that frustrates me. I could have done so much better. But what I have to keep reminding myself is, 
that my pain and my hell that I went through is my greatest asset because had I not had that pain and had I not had the hell that I went through, I wouldn't have much to say to you today and there wouldn't be 150 people on the line this morning. So I'm actually glad that I went through the hell that I went through and one way or the other, I know that God will see me through. My bills are paid. I don't owe any money to anybody. Yes, I'd love to retire. Yes, I'd love to travel a little more. I'd love to go to Ireland. I'd love to go, God, you know, wherever. I bought my tickets to Ireland twice. I don't want to get all sidetracked. I bought tickets to Ireland twice, once to Dublin and once to County Cork or something like that. Some I've, I forgot where the airport is. Maria will tell us when we're done. I bought my tickets twice. I've never been there. The pen that I'm holding in my hand that I use every day says Dublin 2019. And it's a great pen. I love a cross pen. Oh, I love a cross pen. Um, but I wasn't there. I wasn't there. The plane broke while we were in North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a Thursday night, I think. And they came and they let us sit there on the tarmac for like three hours. I watched an entire Star Wars movie while we were waiting. I watched The Force Awakens while we were sitting on the tarmac. And they says, oh, it'll just be a little while longer. I'm thinking to myself, how the heck did I watch this whole movie? And we haven't moved one inch. Then they let us sit there and sit and sit. Then they says, okay, we got to take you off the plane, take everything with you, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but we're going to put you back on the plane. We've sent for sandwiches and snacks and drinks and this and that, which obviously doesn't help me. I'm not eating the sandwiches. I'm not eating, you know, Doritos. God help me not to eat Doritos. So at like 11 o'clock at night, they finally put us in a hotel. And then the next day, uh, there were no flights to Ireland until the following Monday. And so the, the thing ended on Sunday. So this pen that I use every day says Dublin 2019. I was never there. Dang it. All right. Next third time's a charm. Next time I buy my ticket, if Maria's still here, I can't, I don't know if she's here or not. Maria, the next time I uh, get my tickets to Ireland, doggone it, I'm going to be in flipping Ireland. I promise you. All right. God willing. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself and then pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. He is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. Now, I have to tell you that this was not my fate, really. I was not a food hider. I lived as a child with two other compulsive overeaters. There was food all around. And then when I was single and lived by myself, I lived by myself. There was really no reason I live by myself now, but I don't, I, there's nothing in this house, nothing, unless I eat the pen. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I should eat the pen. It says Dublin. I wasn't there. Maybe I should eat the pen. I don't know. I, I don't know if the ink has sugar in it though, but the bottom line is um, there's nothing in this house that's not on my food plan if it's a food item. Now, obviously, Mr. Clean and Bleach and Decon and Drano are not on my food plan, but I don't, I don't have any desire, thank God, to consume those things. All right, let's continue. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work gets drunk. Oh, yeah, I can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor which gives him, who gives him morphine and some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. We all have our story. Some of you function in the workplace beautifully. Some of you were very functional compulsive overeaters. Some of you were anorexic and you had your little secret 
and you were bulimic and your little secret was that when you eat, you go to the bathroom and you purge. There's three forms of bulimia. There's regurgitation bulimia, exercise bulimia, and laxative bulimia. There's three types. Some of you were all three. Some of you were just one, but you had your little secret. You could go to the bathroom and get rid of anything that went inside your body. It's not a pretty life, is it? It's not a life that's enviable at any level. And yet that's the life we were leading. Did we choose it? Hardly, hardly. It was chosen for us. But thank God that in the middle of this nightmare, in the middle of this horror, in the middle of this pain and darkness, we not only have each other, that we have a program that works and we have a higher power. If we didn't have those things, then life would hold no promise. Life would hold no light at the end of the tunnel. It wouldn't be worth living. It wouldn't be life. It would just be existence. But there is hope and there are promises and there is a higher power. Whether you choose to call that higher power God or you whether you choose to call that higher power great outdoors, group of drunks, um, gift of desperation, whether you are an atheist or an agnostic, whether you are whatever you are, as long as you're willing to believe, you don't even have to believe, are you willing to believe that there is a power greater than yourself? We can assure you that you are on your way. And the title of the chapter, There Is a Solution, becomes a promise in and of itself. The promise of the chapter is that there is indeed a solution. Let's continue, page 22, page 22. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Because we are compelled to eat these foods because these other matters aside, food is doing something for me, not to me, for me. It's doing something for me that nothing else can do. Here's what it does. Ice cream gives me an instant sense of ease and comfort that Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. And that effect is so elusive that while I admit that I'm in injuring myself, we admit it's injurious, we will pursue that effect to the gates of insanity or death. I chased that effect for decades of my life. I wanted women, wealth, position, but I wanted food more. How do I know that? That's not what my brain would tell you because I actively pursued the food, whereas I didn't actively pursue the other things. Food was doing something for me that nothing else did until I put my hand in God's hand and I worked these steps. And that little child that I was in kindergarten, I'm going to Chicago in October. I'm, I'm part of the Mather High School class of 1972. We're having our 50th year reunion. 
this year in October. Please, God, let everybody live long enough to enjoy the reunion. We've lost so many along the way. Let there not be another loss to our class, please, please. I'm going home for the reunion. So there's been pictures circulating of us as first graders and second graders and third graders. And I see this little child, me, and I want to take him aside and say, let me just shoot you in the head, <laughs> spare you all. No, I really don't know. There is a joking thought that somebody should have just shot me in the head. No, 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 no. But here I am to tell the story. Doctors have been writing me off since I was 17 years old. They've been signing my death certificate. That food ransacked that little boy and took that little boy and stomped out his dreams, stomped out the crushes that he had on girls. All love became unrequited love. I looked at life through a fence I watched life go by from the sidelines, unable to live it like the other kids. I couldn't look like them. I couldn't do the things they could do. I couldn't be a part of life, but now I am. And the measure of death is not, did you die? We're all gonna die. But the measure of it is that I can walk into that reunion and I know what it's like now to have lived. I have tasted life for the first time in my life, not because of anything I accomplished, not because of the places I've been, not because of any other reason than God rescued me from myself. That that food tasted so sweet, I could not see life without it. When you told me when I came in here in 1979, you don't have to eat this way anymore. I wanted to say F you, buddy. You don't understand what it's like to live in the hell of my head. You don't understand that I eat because I ate and I binge because I binged and I binged because something happened and I binged because nothing happened. And I looked at myself and in my quiet moments, I hated my guts. I hated myself because I could not stand the person I had become. And when you hate yourself that much, when you despise the breath inside of you, when you despise getting up in the morning, the only thing that took the edge off was the very thing that made me despise myself in the first place. The only thing that ruined me, that putrefied my life and vandalized my dreams and set fire, set arson to everything I could have been, should have been, was the food. I couldn't see the forest through the trees. To me, life wasn't worth living if I couldn't eat. So you weren't promising me something I wanted at that time. You're going to sit there and tell me in Skokie, Illinois, and Chicago, Illinois, and Evanston, Illinois, and, and Morton Grove, Illinois, and all these other places I went to meetings, mostly in Chicago and Skokie. You're going to sit and tell me that I don't have to eat this way anymore? Then kill me now, goddammit. Because I can't bear not eating. How am I going to survive the emotions that I have without Chips Ahoy and Captain Crunch? You showed me another way. You taught me another way. You showed me a choice that I did not know I had. And that is God's way. God's way. I felt God was just out here to punish me. I ended up with a, I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie for parents. And I got Max and Virginia Grabowski, very different. Very different. My mother was 275 pounds. My dad was 275, 300 pounds, whatever it was. 
And in our adult years together, we were 1,100 pounds. They were almost 600 and I was 500 when they died. I wanted something so different than what I got. And I raged at God and temper tantrumed at God with a knife and a fork in my hands and ripped open bags and boxes and ripped open containers as with everything I had to get at that food because I was rip roaring mad at what life had done to me. Why didn't I have cousins, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews? How come I didn't inherit anything when my parents died? How come I was living the life I was living? I felt like a victim. 99% of the time, I felt like a victim. And truthfully speaking, in those days in the food, my greatest joy in life was the misery of other people. And my greatest misery was their joy. I wanted you to suffer just like I had suffered. I didn't see another way. How could I? I couldn't get past step one. And it took me a long time. If you're struggling, if this is describing you, put the food down. There is another way. There is a better life out there. There is a better plan out there. You can die with this disease or from this disease, and they are very different. The disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. It continues to get worse every day, whether you're eating or not. Abstinence does not treat this disease. I'm not saying don't be abstinent. Every time I say anything like that, people will text me, email me, call me. Why did you say you don't have to be abstinent? I never said that. But I said abstinence in and of itself will not treat this disease. The only treatment we have is the steps, is the spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's all we have. Let's continue. Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people, but I do. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. This experience, the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Once I take food into my system, if I did that today, now I have no intention of doing this, but if I were to go to Safeway grocery store on Scottsdale and Shea Boulevard, and I got myself a couple of boxes of Chips Ahoy and a couple of gallons of ice cream, and I got myself about $25, $30 worth of Rolos and chocolate turtles and dumped everything in the ice cream, I would be dead within six months. I would be dead in six months. Because once that monster gets unleashed from the, from, the, from the dungeon, there's no controlling it and there's no stopping it. It's not like I can go out today and eat McDonald's and then get back on track tonight. That doesn't happen for people like me. How do I know that? I've tried it 40 million times. I'm just going to do this. It's my birthday. I'm just going to do that. It's Fred's birthday. I'm just going to do this. It's this. It's that. It doesn't work like that. Not for people like me. Maybe for people like you. Couldn't tell you. Don't know. Have no clue. I know it doesn't work that way for people like me. I am either in recovery or I am in the disease and there is no middle ground. I am, I'm going to say that again. 
in everything I do today, I am either moving toward God or I am moving toward the disease and there is no middle ground. I'm in recovery or I'm in the disease. That does not just go for the food that I eat. Am I gossiping? Am I character assassinating? Am I engaging in behaviors that are lies? Very wonderful man once said to me on a February day in Chicago, I'll never forget it. It was a February day, freezing, freaking cold. Ice storms had moved through. You couldn't walk, you couldn't drive. <sighs> and yet there we were at the meeting and we went to the meeting and he poked his big finger in my chest and he said, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas yet, kid? He used to poke me all the time. I hated it, but he used to poke me. I was 24 years old. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room and three, 400 pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And then one day he said to me on that February night that I'm thinking of, he says, if you want to know if you're in recovery, if everything you said today, everywhere you went today, everything that came in and out of your mouth and in and out of your ears was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? And if you're not, you are engaging in things that you want kept secret unto you. And if you are doing that, you are in the disease if you are not doing it, you are in recovery. I'll never forget that night. It was a mother of a mother of a night. It was in February 1979. What a miserable night. And he said that to me. And I remember it. And it was 43 years ago. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Before I turn this back over to and next week, we're going to read a very famous line in this book. I'm not going to tell you what it is now. You'll have to tune in next week, but we're going to be together next week. And we're going to read in the very first paragraph, one of the key lines in this entire book. But before I turn it back over to Maria 